Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley here with Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Howdy, Adam. So will he or won't he, (laughs) if you follow Massachusetts politics, you know that the question of the moment is whether Congressman Joe Kennedy III is going to challenge Senator Ed Markey in next year's Democratic primary. Signs point to yes, and one poll of that hypothetical matchup suggests Kennedy would actually be the favorite if he gets into the race. The bad news for Kennedy is that he's already being cast by some members of the media as a poster child for political opportunism and entitlement. Peter, do you think that criticism is fair? Oh, I would say it's spot on. You know, the point of view I'm coming from is that politics is, you know, it's law of the jungle. But even by the law of the jungle, this is an aggressive move. Let me ask you, what makes... Kennedy thinking about going up against Ed Markey uh, worse than, say, Ayanna Presley going up against Mike Capuano, if it is worse, to use a well, broad Well, no, by the way, term. that's a very good question. I suppose what makes it worse is he, he has the name Kennedy. So that cuts both ways. Um, he is supposed to be nobler and above so many more things. Um, But it's a measure of blind ambition, very much the same as Presley was. The bottom line is Presley's doing very well in Washington. Yes, she is. But there was no real substantive difference between her and Capuano. And there's no real substantive difference that we can see now between Kennedy and Markey. I guess one thing we should mention is Presley, as our listeners will know, made the case that as an African-American woman, she was going to have a different perspective on the job than Mike Capuano, which is an argument that Joe Kennedy probably is going to have a hard time making. No, but he can make the argument, or the argument will be implicit, that it's a different generation. True. Many people are up for change, change for change's sake. Um, I think... To the extent to which that's true, that's in the positive column for Congressman Kennedy. Of course, as we await the outcome of Kennedy's Hamlet Act, it's worth remembering that two other candidates have already committed to challenging Markey. Labor attorney Shannon Liss-Reardon and Steve Pemberton. He's a former foster child turned corporate executive. In this episode, you're going to hear from both of them. Peter Kadzis, any preliminary thoughts before we get to our guests? Well, I'll I'll keep it short. I mean, they both have very good personal stories, very compelling. But as our listeners will find out in a minute, they're very different sorts of stories. All right. Without further ado, here is Peter's conversation with Shannon Liss-Reardon, followed by my talk with Steve Pemberton, who I should mention soldiered through our conversation who I should mention soldiered through our chat, even though he was seriously under the weather. We'll start things off with Liz Reardon discussing the state of her campaign. I'm running my race. I've been traveling around the Commonwealth all summer long. I've been talking with voters. I've been talking at Democratic town committee meetings. I've been talking with unions and activists. And I'm really excited about the response I've been getting. It's extremely energizing. When I get in front of voters and I talk with them about what matters and why I'm running for the Senate, people are very excited. I've been I've been really thrilled to see the support we've well, been what getting. Do you, what do you say to them that elicits an enthusiastic response. I have been talking about the work I've done over the last 20 years fighting for working people. I've been in the trenches representing 
Uber drivers, Starbucks baristas, FedEx drivers, American Airlines skycaps, nurses, teachers, doctors, uh, firefighters. I have been on the front lines fighting for working people. I have seen how the rights of working people have been eroded over the past decades, and that is my primary focus, that corporations are, are rigging the system, they're rewriting the rules of the workplace, um, and, and they're trampling on working people. And workers need a strong advocate in Washington. That's what I've done through my whole career. I've also been a longtime women's rights activist and advocate. Uh, I started my, my career before I went to law school as an organizer in the women's movement. My first job out of college was, was working with Bella Abzug, legendary feminist icon. I learned so much from her. And now I'm seeing so many battles that we were fighting back then in the early 90s. Uh, assaults on women need to be fought all over again. And I now have a 14-year-old daughter. Um, I'm fighting this fight for her and for all of our children. What do you see the future, you know, in big picture, the future of the labor movement in the United States? Well, I think the labor movement has been under attack for decades. Um, and I, I'm very concerned about what this is doing to our economy. Um, so many companies these days are not even classifying their workers as employees. Uh, they're trying to classify everyone as an independent contractor, so no one has any rights to, to basic wages, to unemployment, to workers' comp, or the ability to organize a union. Uh, and I'm very concerned that if we don't change direction soon and make sure that workers have those rights, rights that we have fought for over the course of decades, if we don't protect and defend those rights, there's not going to be employment as we know it in this country in the coming decades. Massachusetts Massachusetts needs a senator who is going to fight those battles, who's going to put that front and center, because uh, what is happening in the workplace today is, is fueling income inequality, which is growing to maddening levels. Uh, and I think that is the root of so many problems that, that are facing us, uh, access to health care, education, housing, the opioid crisis. I, I feel that the issues that I've been working on through my career are connected, and it comes back to the issue of income inequality and what are we doing to fight for the rights of regular, everyday people. When people talk about organized labor, most people in general think about all unions together. M myself, I divide organized labor into two very distinct camps, public employees, unions, and everyone else. I'll, I'll be very honest. People who listen to the podcast regularly know that I'm pretty pro-union, but I'm very critical of public employee unions, teachers, cops, mainly because they get more than they give. The teachers' unions in particular, I think, have maintained a monopoly on educational policy that was broken for a while in Massachusetts by the um, charter school movement. Then I think the charter school movement, using dark money, really overplayed the hand. Do you have any opinion about charters? Well, uh, just to step back a bit about your question about public um, public employee unions. So I've worked at law firms that have represented private sector unions, public employee unions. I think that American workers have the right to be organized and should be organized, and I think they have more power when they come together. Um, I think that teachers need to have a voice in how educational policies are affecting what's happening in the classroom. Um, I think that the No Child Left Behind um, 
act was just uh, was really just a travesty for American classrooms. And it's I think a big scam. And I think I think teachers need to be listened to. And it really uh, delves into what I think about workers in general. Workers should have a say in how um, in how their workplaces are organized. Uh, I, I think they've got views on how things can be better run, and I think they should be listened to. And I, I'm a strong advocate for. Um, for unions being able to take these stands both on fairness for their members and also for bringing forward the public policy beliefs that their members have about how their activities and their work can be more effective. Okay. Let me switch gears here a little bit. Why take on an established name like Ed Markey and why stay in the race when it appears that an even more established name Kennedy is going to be in there. I mean, the odds are stacked against you. I think voters are upset, concerned about how nothing is getting done in Washington. And I think the way to get something done in Washington is not to send back the same politicians who have been there for a long time. I think we need someone with a fresh perspective um, uh, and as, as a women's rights advocate, who is going to fight harder for reproductive rights, for pay equity, for freedom from sexual harassment in the workplace than someone who has spent a career devoted to these issues, devoted to the issues of, of working people and who has succeeded? Has anyone told you they think you're crazy? Um, well, <laughs> I've been told I'm crazy through what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Uh, oh. <laughs> and I just, th- we're talking about an election in 2020. I think I bring the record, the experience, and the skill set that we need to take on these challenges before us to fight them uh, and to win them. And also, just another thing that, that I think does set me aside from my opponent or and prospective opponent is that I think money is a corrupting force in politics. I think it's unfortunate that money plays such a role in campaigns. Uh, I'm not going to take a penny of corporate PAC money. I I haven't taken any corporate PAC money, and I never will. But would you take money from an organized union PAC? Um, Yes, I've been talking to to unions. I'm actively seeking the support of unions. I'm really proud to be the candidate in this race who got the first union endorsements in this race. Six locals of the IBEW have endorsed me. Uh, I've received more union endorsements that we're going to be announcing soon that I'm very excited about. Do you have any political heroes, people alive today or in the distant past? Well, I'll name a couple off the bat. One of them, I already mentioned, Bella Abzug. Mm-hmm. I worked for right out of college. Uh, she was a fiery force. She said, here's, That's an here's what we need to do. We're going to do it. And I learned so much from watching how she just made things happen. Uh, and, and that's what I have tried to do throughout my career. Um, she was a labor lawyer before she went into politics. And she actually went into politics the same age that I am now, 50. So I, I think there's some... There's there's meaning behind that. Um, I'm, you have to get the hat. I, ha- I have to get the hats. Well, no, uh, styles uh, have changed, but I, <laughs> but I loved her big ideas and I loved her big hats. She stood out that way. She didn't want to be um, mistaken. She was often mistaken for the legal secretary. So she said women attorneys <laughs> wore hats. So that became her thing. <laughs> That's uh, That was something I, I didn't know. Um, when Ayanna Presley ran against um, Mike Capuano, there was the implication there that it would be great to have a, another woman in Congress. But at this, the flip side of that coin is, seems to be that is that a reason to discard a man who's 
been there when organized women's political forces have needed him. Well, I don't see an election as a, as a question of throwing someone out. I see an election as a choice that voters have for who is the best candidate to carry forward our vision. My campaign is a fight about the values that, that I believe in and what I would bring to the voters of Massachusetts. What would your first set of legislative goals be? My focus, of course, is working people because that has been my career um, and that is my that is the primary right. vision that I'm taking into the race. So there's so many specifics of what we need to do to overcome the erosion of workers' rights in this country over the past decades. We need to immediately raise the federal minimum wage. We need to eliminate the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. We need to crack down on abuse by corporate America of misclassifying workers as non-employees so that they shift all the burdens to the workers and evade all of the responsibilities of an employer. We need to uh, expand unions' ability to organize um, and to reach collective bargaining agreements. Those are, those are some of my top priorities. As, as a women's rights activist, we need to do everything that we can uh, to be protecting women's right to choose. Um, women's right to choose is under assault in this country. Um, we need to have these protections in place so that we don't have to keep fighting these battles over and over again through the generations. Um, we need to take immediate action on gun violence. Uh, I, I've just been in shock, as, as we all have, watching time and time again these episodes of mass shootings break out. They're harming our communities. They're harming our schools. We need to have strong federal gun legislation. Um, like, we have good laws here in Massachusetts. We need to enact them on a federal level. Uh, we need to have universal background checks. We need to ban uh, assault weapons. We need to have red flag laws. Um, and I have called for even taking bolder action than that, because we get all these laws passed, which we need to do, and we need to focus on that immediately. They're going to be challenged in court. And I know that as a lawyer, because I see how uh, I see how legislation runs into hurdles when you get into the courtroom, and that's why I have called for a discussion to repeal the Second Amendment to the Constitution, because that amendment has been misused and misinterpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is going to block our ability to legislate reasonably to keep these weapons out of our communities and off of our streets. If the Democrats don't take the Senate and the odds are against them, Mitch McConnell, if he remains as majority leader, is just going to put his thumb on your proposals. They're going nowhere fast. You know, I've represented in my career plenty of people who voted, who voted every which way, voted Democrat, voted Republican, even voted for the president who's in our office now. When they hear me talk about how we need to hold employers accountable and make sure that everyone follows the rules, uh, they support me across the political spectrum. And I feel that this issue of labor rights and workers' rights is an issue that should be the talking point for Democrats. And somehow we've lost out on that part of the conversation. Somehow Republicans have tried to convince working people, uh, Trump in 2016 tried to convince working people that he stood for them, that he was going to protect their jobs. It was a complete and total lie. But apparently it shifted. But it it, apparently it shifted. <laughs> it shifted things. So that's my concern: is that Democrats are not taking on these issues uh, as aggressively as we need to be doing? Because this is this is a huge battle, and I believe that this is the underpinning of so much, uh, so many of the difficult issues that face us in our country today. Do you have a preferred candidate for president? 
Um, I, I do. I've been a big supporter of Elizabeth Warren since Why she first ran for the surprised? Senate. <laughs> I was there on that day in February when she announced her presidential kickoff at a mill in Lawrence, which was the where the bread and roses strike yep. happened. And I brought my I brought my 14 year old daughter Jordan there to see her, and that was an exciting day. So um, I think she has uh, she has a lot of ideas for a lot of things, uh, and I, I'm very pleased to see how she seems to be um, capturing the attention of American voters because. They are looking at the substance. I, I feel confident that they look at the substance and she's going to be our next president. We've spent all of our time talking about domestic issues. In terms of foreign policy, do you have any thought on how or if we should extricate ourselves from Afghanistan? Well, let me just talk generally about foreign policy. Obviously, my expertise has been on domestic issues and about right. rights in the workplace. But I know that what we're doing now as a country under uh, the so-called leadership of, of Donald Trump is not the right thing. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he's out there just making policy decisions on a whim. On foreign policy issues, I will surround myself with advisors who have studied the issues, who understand what the history has been and what the roadmap is to getting to solutions. We, we have to pull ourselves back from the policies that have gotten us involved in places where we have no business being and where we have simply added to loss of life without without aiding the situation. Just, just a Final question, and it's more or less where foreign policy intersects with policy for workers and business, and that's tariffs in China. How, as a United States senator, would you advocate for a policy that protects the American worker from unfair competition but doesn't incite the potential for some sort of international financial collapse. Well, I, I'm very concerned about trade agreements that have left us vulnerable to to losing losing jobs to countries where there are no workplace standards, um, to uh, places where there are no environmental standards. There need to be uh, we we need to have standards in place so that we're not just exporting um, these jobs abroad. Um, and we need to be protecting the values that uh, sustain us as a country. And that includes, uh, includes caring about uh, the working people who make our economy what it is, that keep it going, um, and, and environmental standards. Because I, you know, I believe that uh, climate change and environmental degradation is, is an existential crisis that is of paramount importance, and we need to do something about it soon, immediately. We can't wait decades more. And I think that all of these issues intersect. Listen, thank you very much. We ranged all over the place here. And uh, thank good you. luck. And now my conversation with Steve Pemberton. Let me start off by asking you, how did you discover that Joe Kennedy was thinking about running for the seat that you are already mm. running for? It was the word of the survey. It was the word of the anonymous survey. Did you get a call yourself, or did you have someone come to you and say, hey, I think you should know that uh, this may be going on? No, no, I read it. When you read it, what was your reaction? That um, there was nothing anonymous about it, 
as soon as I saw it, I said, uh, that's part of a larger plan. Well, it was a good call on your part, because obviously you were right. Did it tick you off at all? Was there sort of an, oh, crap moment? Like, you know, I wasn't planning on dealing with this, or did you just kind of roll with it? Definitely more rolling with it. It doesn't fundamentally change what I'm going to do, because I represent and bring something different than they do. What is it that you bring to this campaign that uh, that Markey does not and that Kennedy would not? And presumably, by the way, that Shannon Liss Reardon does not. I just don't see anyone uh, who's lived the experience that I have, who's been on the other end of policies that fail, has suffered the, the human toll of what happens when they don't work. You know, uh, growing up in foster care, uh, and being taken away from my mother when I was three because she was battling addiction, losing my father to gun violence when I was five. And then, you know, getting uh, caught in the gaps of a well-intentioned foster care system that, you know, quite literally forgot about me. Uh, and being taken in by the most horrible kind of people that you can imagine who take everything from me. And uh, yet I fought on. You know, even most days if I wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be, you know, because it was a real challenge. Um, And as a result, you kind of overlooked Adam, you know, and you know it. People just look past you like you don't even exist. And meanwhile, you're trying to see who will see not the circumstances of my life, but my possibilities. And I've felt those same threads again as this has unfolded because um, you do see that same being overlooked, forgotten about, um, that uh, I recognize because I experienced that. But I think it's how a lot of people in Massachusetts feel. They're not into the shine of this so much. Not when we're living in a time of record income inequality, um, living in fear of gun violence every day now, mass shootings, record levels of addiction, record levels of kids entering care. This is not about the shine. This is going to be about the grind and whether or not Uh, There are going to be voices in the race, voices in the Senate that reflect that human experience. There's no way that we have even close to enough time here to talk about what you experienced growing up as a kid in the foster care system. But you mentioned a moment ago being taken in by, I can't remember the exact phrase you used. It might have been the worst people imaginable, something like Mm -hmm. that. Can you tell me a little bit more uh, what you're talking about there? These were foster families who saw me as a way to make money and um, were masterful, actually, and I don't mean that in a good way, masterful at painting the story of me as a broken boy, one without a chance in the world. You know. Was this one family that, that multiple. did these things? Multiple families? Multiple, but there was one that, that I lived with for over a decade. Um, and they were the ones who um, did to me the most damage, actually. Uh, but in the end, though, um, you know, the scales of their depravity um, uh, were balanced uh, by these everyday people. A uh, neighbor who used to bring me books because she saw that I liked to read, uh, director of an upward bound program who uh, I still remember saying uh, to somebody else that I was going to change the world. Well, the truth is that Ruby Dotton, who was the director of that program, thought that about everybody, you know, every young person she ever met. And then a high school teacher, John Sykes, who took me in uh, just three days after Christmas when I literally had nowhere to go. You know, so 
I'm not the only one who's inherited tragedy and difficulty, uh, but I fought the good fight, and I am still running that race to put an end to a cycle that I had inherited. But I also came to understand there were these broader social forces that quite literally ripped my family apart and took my parents away from me that are still happening today, and in fact, they're happening at even greater levels today. You're talking gun violence and addiction specifically. No, not just no. that. Okay. That was part of it. Uh, but it's income inequality. Uh, it's a lack of upward mobility. It's not getting a second chance. We, we become a nation when we look at our politics. It seems to be driven very much by individual celebrity and singular causes. But, you know, as Americans and as citizens of the Commonwealth, we, we don't live our life like that. You know, we, we deal on any given day. Uh, with an inflection of a lot of things, right? From uh, how are we going to you know, pay the tuition bill? How are we going to take care of our parents who are aging? Um, you know, how do we get our next job? You know, those kinds of, that's how we live. So what would you try to do if elected to the U.S. Senate on a legislative level to deal with some of those huge and seemingly in some cases almost intractable problems that you just mentioned? The things I think you that you do around uh, income inequality, things that I have done in, in my own life, making sure that women are paid the same as men, uh, regardless of level and station and function, full utilization of the, of the talent pool. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things that do level the playing field. Another focus on higher education access, and, and that could mean uh, apprenticeships, that could uh, mean learning a craft. We, we've got to get more and more of our citizens into uh, these kind of upwardly mobile levers. And is that something where you have seen attempts so far uh, at the Senate level that have failed, either by Congressman, pardon me, either by Senator Markey or, or other people, or is this something that, as you see it, the Senate has been largely silent on? Largely silent. Uh, and it doesn't mean that uh, there's not been passion about things like uh, climate change, uh, but um, and especially by Senator Markey, by the way. I mean, we should readily acknowledge that he was amongst the first. But as a father of three children, uh, uh, I'm going to reject any notion that I can't speak, you know, to the importance of the environment or uh, that uh, my election would result in a loss of a voice, not when I have three children. Uh, not when I see uh, these other concentric circles that have around things like climate change. So one of them, for, ex for example, um, uh, that the first communities often to feel the effects of climate change are low-income communities. Coming from a community like New Bedford, where fishing is the primary uh, industry, well, if climate change uh, diminishes that industry, then the effect that it has on that, on that seaport city is extraordinary. Um, and so that, you know, for, for me is a different perspective. Um, and, and, I, and I feel very strong that we've got to get out of the singularity. Life is not a, a, a swimming pool where each issue exists in its own lane. It's driven and impacted by others. I want to get back just for a second to the income inequality question. You talked about taking steps to make sure that women are paid the same as men mm -hmm. when they do the same work. And you talked about opening up vocational opportunities for people. My sense is that the income inequality issue is rooted in these bigger structural ways that we have accepted that capital is going to be distributed in society, the way that corporations function mm -hmm. to maximize shareholder profit. So 
would the things that you mentioned, would they really be enough to make more than a small dent in income inequality? One of the general challenges I, I see is that we often are dealing with the consequences of issues but not their, not their root causes. Um, and so the structural inequalities um, that, that you rightly reference are a major part of, of the problem. This idea that um, we have to shift our mindset, and Adam Smith and, you know, defined uh, you know, capitalism, and even a little bit further on, Friedman as well said, hey, businesses have no corporate social responsibility. Their only responsibility is to generate a profit. Well, now we're seeing where that gets us, and it's not a good place. So you're going to see uh, a shift uh, towards this realization that uh, uh, employees need to be at the center of that conversation. Uh, and that's the work that I did when I was at Monster um, and when I was at Walgreens. When I was at Walgreens, for example, I worked with uh, and was responsible for overseeing our efforts to employ people with disabilities. If you have a disability, um, doesn't matter what the unemployment rate is. If you have a disability, it's twice that. The national average is twice that for someone with a disability. These are people who, who can work, Adam, by the way. Uh, but they get locked into these identities uh, that aren't fair. And not just that, also uh, children aging out of the foster care system. You know, at 18 years old, um, the society says, hey, uh, we've met our obligation to you. Fortunately for me, I went through that experience. And fortunately, I had a college acceptance letter at Boston College. If I didn't have that, I can't tell you where I would have been that September. I quite literally don't know. What are you going to do? Well, you're, you're either going to go to other work, education, or you could become part of another government system um, that is uh, a big burden to you uh, and doesn't create uh, those uh, upwardly mobile uh, opportunities that I benefited from. Education was it for me, um, and it should be for others too. How long have you been running for Senate now? I should know the answer to that question <laughs> since I'm sitting Since mid-July. Since mid-July, okay. Mid-July. I'm curious about what, if any, ways there are in which that experience has not corresponded with what you expected. And sometimes I always think of this like if I'm going to a, a country I've never been to before. I'll get there and I'll realize it's not like what I expected at all, but it's very hard to, to articulate yeah. what I did uh. expect. So is there anything that as you've gone along and done this, you've thought, wow, I didn't see that coming? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I could, uh, I've written one book. I could write another about that, the answer to that very question. There is so much heroism in America today, so much heroism in Massachusetts, what they're found in everyday people. And against the Great Wall of Heroism, we are too often placing the wrong ladders. You know, we're looking up at the wrong people. And while some of them deserve those accolades, a lot of them don't. Um, I find more joy um, in uh, meeting with an agency, as I did a couple weeks ago, and agency that works with those newly arrived to America who just want to participate in the American dream. It's been around for a while. So this broader narrative around illegal immigration and these people taking something from us is, um, uh, is not borne out in, in, in fact. Uh, and then people just every day, they just kind of get up in there. You know, they, they're just trying to do the best they can for themselves. And what they're really asking of elected officials is for our help. They want our help. They want our support. They're, they're basically asking, like, do you see me? Um, and they're also going to say, I suspect in this election, that it's no longer enough to just ask for our vote. You're going to have to listen to our voice. Um, it's no longer enough to, to say that uh, you want our passion. They're also going to say we want our presence too. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, voices that need to hear that. 
The other thing that's been revealing quite candidly is um, the insider play. Uh, the response that uh, me and my team got to me saying I was thinking about it uh, was amongst uh, the most vitriolic, unprofessional conversations I've experienced. Uh, but when Joe Kennedy did it, uh, the response was completely different. It was open arms. It was run, Joe, run. And there is an inconsistency about that uh, that I, I take great umbrage with. We all should, actually, because you can't have it both ways. You can't say, uh, hey, we need you to run for office, uh, but, but then say the next, in the next sentence, but no, not that office, not against that person. I'm curious, uh, and I should say just as an aside, it seemed to me like in some quarters there was some skepticism. I'm thinking of a couple Globe columns, I think one by Scott Lehigh, one by Joan Venaki, if memory <laughs> serves, suggesting that his decision to maybe run conveyed a strong sense of entitlement. But I'm more curious about the nasty stuff that you say you encountered. Can you, without betraying anything that you have to keep private, can you tell me a little bit more about the kind of things you're talking about? I mean, were, were these... Angry emails from people, anonymous phone calls, face-to-face uh, -face confrontations. These were insiders, you know, um, who uh, to them I was violating the code. Um, and, um, you know, there'll come a future time where I'll talk in greater detail about what I, what I experienced. Um, but it falls far short of a representative democracy. You know, it falls far short uh, of what we say as a democratic party that we're about. So we say that we're a party of equality and access and inclusion, but the behavior, at least that I experienced, um, was not that, to be perfectly candid. One final question for you. When you talked about voters having different expectations in this election of the candidates who are asking for, for their votes, I was reminded, maybe because I was already thinking about it a little bit beforehand, of the discrepancy that became evident in the Ayanna Presley mike Capuano race, where Capuano seemed to have this very traditional idea of what it means to be a congressperson. You go, you keep your head down, you legislate. And then Ayanna Presley, on the other hand, seemed to say that she was going to approach the job, if elected as she was, as more of an activist and an organizer, bringing the perspectives of the people who had voted for her with her to Washington. Is that a dichotomy that you think applies to your challenge to Senator Markey as well? Uh, it, it, it is, and, uh, and yet it predates uh, the congresswoman, though, because my introduction to public service was the emphasis on the word service in particular. That's what you were there to do. You were there to serve the needs of the people specifically, uh, not, not to win. I, I think the culture far too often in Washington and in the Senate in particular is uh, it seems to me that power is derived from what you can stop, not what you can do. And you're, you're seeing a lot of the electorate saying, okay, if, if I am watching a video uh, and the sounds of an AK-47 on American streets being wielded by a civilian with the purposeful intent to harm, to destroy lives, um, I don't want to hear, and I did not elect you, for thoughts and prayers. It's not what I elected you for. And having been on the other end of that, having lost my father to gun violence, Adam, the void never goes away. Uh, it never goes away. I, I uh, journey into this world and I'll journey from it and I still won't know what it's like to have a father, and my children to know what it's like to have a grandfather. 
when we move on, whether it's El Paso or Dayton or West Texas, when we move on, the families still have to deal with that. The, the, the consequence is generational. And it's not just that. It's a lot of other things where you have so much of the experts saying, just, I want you to see me and I want you to fight uh, for me in the way that you would fight for a member of your family. But let me ask you, I can't imagine what it's like to experience losing a parent to gun violence. But if you succeed and if you unseat Senator Markey in the Democratic primary, go past whoever else might be running for that seat and end up in Washington, you'll have that firsthand experience, but you'll also have potentially Mitch McConnell back as leader of the sure. Senate. And I'm not sure that your experience and passion uh, on this particular issue, just to cite one, uh, I'm not sure that that would change that fundamental picture. No, uh, unequivocally not. I mean, most uh, of the cha shifts and changes that we've seen, whether it was the suffrage movement or the civil rights movement, um, you know, those came from personal stories and the urgency, the insistence of those experiences is why we had the fundamental shift and change to, to society. Um, I think we're at a similar watershed moment here now, too. Um, and so I'm obviously quite aware of uh, what Mitch McConnell um, has done. Um, he aids and abets this president. You know, obviously, the majority being the ruler and dictating what can be seen, what, what, what can be voted on, is, is a challenge. But I'll also tell you that there, there is a time where the mantle does get passed. So the fight may be the same, but it does get passed on to another generation, uh, but another generation uh, that better understands what's hanging in the balance and isn't bartering, isn't trading on those things. Are you in this race for the long haul, whoever does or doesn't get in? I am. I am in the race for the, for the long haul. You don't get in it. You don't give up your life as you knew it, uh, you know, to, uh, to step away from it. And I've been in it for, you know, for some time. And I'm I'm actually very very excited by it. It doesn't there isn't anything that I see. Maybe it's just my own. Maybe it's my own personal experience. You know, you know, uh, growing up in a system where you were forgotten about and abandoned, discarded, uh, waking up on more than one occasion wondering if that was the day you were going to die. Well, you could imagine that any other obstacle beyond that is not going to rise to the same level. Uh, you do learn pretty quickly though why you're doing it. Like what is the reason, right? And What's my North Star, my lighthouse, my compass, uh, is these, these broader social issues that did so much damage to my family, took my mother from me, my father from me, uh, denied me any chance of, of, of having a broader family. Now, joy did come in the morning when I married my wife, Tanya, over the last 23 years and our three children, so we were able to reset that table. So things turned out for me okay, Adam. The question now uh, for me, uh, and for anyone who has uh, overcome a similar set of difficulties is, well, for whom else can you end a cycle? Because I'm not exceptional. I don't have any superpower, right? I'm just an example of what happens when, when someone gets the, the only thing that they're really asking for, and that's a chance. And that's what a lot of people in the Commonwealth are looking for, a chance and a choice, especially in this election. And I'm going to bring them one. I don't know any other way. Steve Pemberton, thank you. Appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, Adam, there aren't many political interviews that are as 
moving and emotional as that. Yeah, that was an intense conversation to be a part of. Moving on to Shannon Liss Redden, um, you hadn't heard me interview her, so you've just listened to her for the first time. Um, what jumped out at you about our conversation? The first thing is she sounds to me like she has, to use a touchy-feely phrase, grown a lot as a candidate since she got into the race in May. When I saw her on Greater Boston back then, she very much looked like someone who was new to this. Uh, I thought she sounded significantly stronger in her conversation with you. Uh, that might have been a function, for one thing, of just her having more time to make her case. But she sounded confident, and she sounded more capable of articulating her rationale for running uh, than she had. I was impressed by her. I got to say, her timing, when it comes to her message of labor being under attack, I was just reading that big BuzzFeed piece about how Amazon's decision to rely on subcontractors has all these terrible ramifications for them and for us. I think there's a similar piece in, in ProPublica right now. Uh, it's a timely message for her to be bringing to the electorate. And whether it's enough to get her through the primary, I don't know. But um, I'm interested to hear her articulate it more fully. I'll tell you that her timing is excellent. What I think might really have legs is her call for a repeal to the Second Amendment. She's a new name. People say, who is that? Oh, you know, that's a woman. She wants to repeal the Second Amendment. Yeah. I mean, that's a heck of a brand. And I'm, I'm not intending to give short shrift to her um, advocacy for the working person or for... Um, organized labor. They're both likable. They're both really smart. I'd still like to know what makes them think they can win. I would agree with that. Uh, as for, for Pemberton, I don't have a firm answer to the question, but you mentioned right when we started you know, offering our wrap-up how, how powerful it was to hear him talk about his childhood and that the, the two ways that he lost his parents, you do get the sense, listening to him, that this is politics as an existential exercise, you know, him going out to try to slay the dragons that took his youth from him, which is, uh, you know, it, it's quite a way to hear someone make the case for why they're running. I'm not sure I've heard it done in, in quite the way or with quite well, the effectiveness I, before that, that he does yeah, it. I'll, I'll tell you, he shares with Presley, with Congresswoman Presley, uh, right. a, 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 a sort of evangelical zeal. Um, and again, I just want to remind listeners, um, he was sick as a dog that day. He was really, really sick. He, he was, I, 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 yeah, we don't need to go into more detail, but if I had what he had, I would have been home and down. Yeah. Well, what struck me about both is there, there's something almost theological about their candidacies. These um, pitches are guaranteed to reassure people that they are blue believers in good standing. You know, they belong to the church of anti-guns, of, of uh, improved abortion access and ending economic inequality. 
But it really strikes me how much politics has become a matter of deep belief. Not a lot of emotional detachment when people make their political arguments nowadays. Well, I got to say, I had been relishing the prospect of covering a Kennedy-Markey contest. After these two conversations that you and I had, uh, I really think it will be a lot more interesting if uh, when we're watching on stage down the road, if Joe Kennedy is squaring off against Ed Markey, if uh, Shannon Liss Reardon and Steve Pemberton are also there. I think you're right. My advice to both of them is when they feel the time is right, get specific. All right. That is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Steve Pemberton and Shannon Liss Reardon for chatting with me and Peter. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already, if you left a quick review, if you haven't already, and if you got in touch with us with any thoughts on what you just heard. You can get us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. Or via email at scrum at wgbh.org. Peter, as always, thanks for doing this with me. Another wonderful day. Our engineer was Doug Sugarts. We get crucial production help from him, Gary Mott, Andrew Masawa, and John Parker. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.